If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we've got something a little different. One of the talks from our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. The speaker was the historian Lauren Johnson, who's the author of The Shadow King, The Life and Death of Henry VI, and the turbulent reign of the late medieval king is the subject of this lecture. Hello, everyone. First of all, can you hear me? Yes, excellent. Most important. Bit more, bit more, you say. Very good, thank you. Um, Yes, so I'm here to talk about Henry VI, uh, a king who is pivotal to English history and also uh, pertinently for our present time to England's relationship with Europe, but a king who often, when he is remembered at all, which, to be honest, he often isn't, is remembered as being either just a weak king, a sort of cipher of poor kingship, or a mad king, and very little else, to be honest, which isn't fair. And my point uh, over the next 40 minutes is is to try and persuade you that there is much more to King Henry VI, that in fact, like all of us, he was a complex, contradictory, fascinating, changing and evolving human being. Um, But to get down to brass tacks, for those of you who might have just booked this talk thinking, well, I know nothing at all about Henry VI by the end of this, so I might know something. Who is he? He was, uh, he lived from 1421 to 1471. And here are some sort of top trumps facts, which I think lay out some of the issues of Henry VI's reign. He is, as you see here, the only monarch to be crowned in England and in France. Many 14th and 15th century kings claim to be rulers of France, but Henry VI is the only one who was actually crowned in France. He is also the youngest monarch in English history. He's pipped to being the youngest monarch in British history by Mary, Queen of Scots, and exactly how young he was when he took the throne, I'll be telling you in a moment. He's the king during whose reign the Hundred Years' War with France was lost by the English, and he is the Lancastrian ruler whose dynasty were clobbered by the Yorkists in the Wars of the Roses. So immediately, I think you get the impression that this is not a story of military glory that you're about to hear. Now, when Henry VI took the throne in 1422, when he inherited what was called the dual monarchy of England and of France, he had a lot of advantages. As you can see here, he was descended on his father's side from the Lancastrian dynasty. His father was the great warrior king, that victor of Agincourt, King Henry V. And uh, through his mother, Henry VI also inherited the right to the throne of France. However, there were a few issues, chief of which was the fact that when Henry VI took the throne, he was nine months old. And he never met that great warrior king 
father of his, because Henry V was already back in France, already back campaigning in the Hundred Years' War before Henry VI was born, uh, and in fact died while still campaigning. And Henry's mother actually went on to have very little role in his upbringing. Um, instead, during Henry VI's infancy, since evidently a nine-month-old could not actually rule the country, it was left to Henry's paternal relatives to take control of the business of government. Uh, going from left to right here, as protector of England, the man left in charge of English affairs during Henry's childhood, his uncle Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester was appointed. Now, Humphrey was a quite bellicose, ambitious man, the youngest brother of Henry V, who had been wounded in the groin at the Battle of Agincourt and had to be dragged out of the fray by Henry V. Um, and he was someone who had very firm opinions about how things should be run, mostly that he should be doing it. In charge of France, appointed regent of France for Henry because very shortly after Henry V died, the King of France also died, making Henry VI ruler of both territories. Um, the slightly older brother of the Duke of Gloucester, John, Duke of Bedford, who we see in the middle here, was appointed regent of France. He was a great patron of the arts, including of this uh, beautiful manuscript, which has his image in, uh, and also a great warrior as well. And then on the right, Henry VI's great uncle was appointed to the head of his council. This was Cardinal Henry Beaufort, a man who, despite uh, his religious occupation, is renowned as being one of the wealthiest um, noblemen in the country, and in fact, probably one of the wealthiest bishops in all of Europe, which was hugely important because you can imagine 80 years into the Hundred Years' War, England was very much strapped for cash, and he helped to shore up the uh, continuing fighting. However, although Henry had these uh, experienced individuals surrounding him, helping him to run the country, that doesn't mean that things were calm and peaceful. In fact, Henry VI grew up with these adults around him constantly backbiting, squabbling, disputing how England should be run, how the French war should continue, who should have ultimate authority under Henry VI. They quarrelled in front of Henry, they quarrelled sometimes violently, raising armies against one another on occasion. And so it was an incredibly tense, fractious environment in which Henry VI grew up. And it led him to be extremely uncomfortable with conflict in later life, something that was to be hugely important to his later development. Now, that was uh, all going on where Henry was growing up in England. In France, even worse was happening thanks to yet another uncle, this one the brother of Henry's mother, a man who uh, was known as the Dauphin Charles, who claimed that he had a superior right to the throne of France, being as he was uh, an adult, well, a teenager, but close enough for the era, and being also French. He believed that the French should have control of French territories, an absurd notion that the English didn't agree with at all. And uh, Charles, the Dauphin Charles, uh, began a, a fight back against Henry VI's English forces in France with the assistance of none other than Joan of Arc, that shepherdess-turned-military leader who was so successful in her campaigning for Charles that she managed to get him crowned king, King Charles VII, at Rams. 
Now, because it was a little bit hard for Henry VI to uh, continue to claim that he was the King of France when his uncle was there actually wearing the crown, it was decided that to try and bolster sort of popular support for Henry, both in France and in England as King of France, he would be crowned in turn. So at the grand old age of eight, he was crowned king in Westminster, and then he was processed very slowly through the war-torn territory of France, eventually to be crowned king in Paris at Notre Dame when he was 10. Now, this proved to be a bit of an error on the part of Henry's advisers because it pushed Henry into real kingship before he was really ready for it. And after he had been crowned and returned to England, by which point he was around 12, Henry, understandably, felt that he was probably ready to take on the business of government for himself. And he was told in no uncertain terms by his councillors that he wasn't ready, that it would be dangerous to the country, in fact, if he were to take on too much power while he was still so young. Two years later, Henry VI tried again. He said, well, now I'm 40 and I've been crowned twice. Could I maybe have the power of patronage? Again, his councillors went, oh, I don't know. Oh, no, not yet, not yet, Your Majesty. No, no, no. And probably the reason for this is that the last child king before King Henry VI had been Richard II, who came to the throne aged 10, who went on to become effectively a tyrant ruler, someone who had taken power too early and had proved to enjoy it a bit too much. However, by squishing Henry's ambitions in this way, his councillors, again, made an error of judgment because Henry just by nature was not like Richard II. He was sensitive. He was kind-hearted. He was, to be honest, a little bit soft. He was very different from Richard II. And to have his own councillors showing such distrust in his judgment made Henry himself doubt his own abilities. And he got in the habit of delegating power to other people, a habit that, to be honest, he never really got out of. So it was actually in Henry's late teens, uh, by the time he was 18, that he finally started to rule for himself as an adult king. And by this point, Henry's personality was becoming clear. Like I say, he was sensitive. He was generous to a fault. He was very pious, more religious than a man of religion was how one of his contemporaries described him. Probably because, to be honest, when he was at his prayers, it was one of the only times he was actually allowed to just sit quietly and do what he wanted instead of constantly having to deal with the demands of people around him. He was also, and this was very unfortunate for a medieval king, easily manipulated. And, as I mentioned earlier, he hated conflict. If he had a choice between doing something that was right but hard or wrong but easy, he always went for the wrong but easy option. To the extent that he just said yes to virtually everything. On one occasion, he gave the position of steward of the Duchy of Cornwall to two different men at the same time. That was an embarrassing oversight, but it actually caused enormous problems because both of these men defended their right to the title militarily, and it led to a decades-long civil war in the West Country. So inattention and vacillation uh, and manipulation in a king like Henry proved to be disastrous for the country at large. Having said that, though, Henry did achieve certain things, and it was clear right from the moment that he first started to exercise power for himself that he was going to be a very different king from his father. 
Instead of celebrating his accession of power when he was 18 years old by going off to fight the French, instead, he celebrated by founding a college, Eton College. And the following year, 1441, he founded King's College, Cambridge. And he explicitly did this, he said, so that these centres of learning and religion would serve as memorials and legacies of his having taken uh, adult power for himself. Now, Henry's personal investment in these projects is clear in the foundation charters and the archival survivals uh, at Eton College in particular. Uh, so on the bottom left of this picture, you can see the chapel of Eton College. And Henry was deeply interested in how this chapel should look, to the extent that there are documents surviving about the appearance of the chapel, of how it would be used, um, that are covered, and you might just be able to see here, covered in crossings out, in marginal notes, and everywhere there are changes to these documents, we find Henry's personal signature, R. Henricus, Rex Henricus, Henry the King. So he is personally making alterations to these projects as they go along. Unfortunately, that level of sort of minute, nitty-gritty detail on the part of the king proved to be a bit of a disadvantage, because uh, eight years into Eton's construction, he decided he wanted to completely alter the chapel as per this document. So he knocked down what had already been built and started again. Similarly, he expanded King's College so that it took over a site seven times larger than what he had originally envisaged, with the result that 20 years after he had first founded these colleges, they still weren't finished. The students were having to stay in local barns and lodge with neighbours. Uh, and by comparison, Henry's uh, wife managed to found a college. Now, if his was uh, called King's College, hers as queen must have been Queen's, exactly. She founded Queen's College, Cambridge, and she finished the entire project in two years. <laughs> so it was possible. It's just that Henry didn't manage to do it. At around the same time that Henry was founding Eton and later Kings, he also took control of foreign policy, which, as you can imagine, in the age of the Hundred Years' War was a vital uh, issue. And again, he had very clear ideas, very different ideas from his father. One of his father's last wishes had been that the prisoners who had been taken at the Battle of Agincourt, the French prisoners who had been seized, should not be released effectively, virtually forever, but certainly until um, the English rights to France had been assured. Henry completely disagreed with this. He was determined that he would make peace with France, and he thought the best way of doing it was to free the last surviving French prisoner of war, Charles, Duke of Orléans, who by this point had been a prisoner in England for 25 years. It was Henry's belief that if he released Orléans, then a peace treaty with France could more easily be uh, created. But by so doing, he um, completely defied his father's will. Henry V had been a warrior from the time he was 16. And he was someone who was able to justify the bloodshed of his fellow Christian, his fellow European, in a way that Henry VI couldn't. Henry VI had no military experience. He was certainly trained, he definitely had armour, but he couldn't go and fight in France because unlike his father, he wasn't one of several brothers. He had no siblings. He wasn't one of several cousins. He had no cousins. The entire future of the Lancastrian dynasty rested on Henry VI himself. If he went off to France and, like his father, died while campaigning of a sickness, that was it. 
That was the entire future of the Lancastrian dynasty done. So Henry VI was forced to remain in England and not to fight. And I think that redoubled his desire to make peace with France. Unfortunately, his decision to release the Duke of Orléans and to try and be much more uh, pacific and helpful in his approaches to France had a number of critics, the most important of whom was his own uncle and previous protector, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. By 1440, Gloucester was the last surviving close male heir of, um, of Henry, effectively his heir to the throne. And having fought at Agincourt, he was not happy about these moves towards peace. He said, in fact, explicitly that he would not agree to Henry's changes. I would never agree to this, he said, and would rather die. So dogged in his defiance of the king. This divide between Gloucester and Henry over peace policy uh, caused a rift that widened as the years passed. And it wasn't helped, to be honest, that um, in 1441, Gloucester's wife, Eleanor Cobham, colluded with treasonable necromancers and with witches to try and cast a horoscope that predicted Henry's death and possibly even was engaging in wax image magic to try and melt the wax images of the king and thus voodoo-like reduce his, his power and kill him. Uh, for that, she was imprisoned for the rest of her life. Um, and you can imagine family Christmases were probably quite awkward from that point onwards. By 1447, Gloucester's resistance to Henry uh, was starting to be such an issue that he was arrested and charged with treason. And while he was under arrest, he died, which was very awkward for Henry. Firstly, because although there is no evidence that Gloucester had been killed uh, or that, you know, there was any malign cause of his death, it was certainly bad timing and there were rumours. Even worse, though, was the fact that without Gloucester, suddenly there were no Lancastrian heirs left. Henry VI was the last survivor. Uh, and that was a real issue because it put the entire future of the Lancastrian dynasty in danger. Now, the good news was that in 1447, Henry was already married. The bad news was there wasn't any sign of a child coming about anytime soon. Now, here we see uh, Henry with his bride, Margaret of Anjou, a French princess and niece of King Charles VII of France. Uh, they were married in 1444 uh, when Henry was not there. They were mar he married her by proxy, so he sent his 50-year-old advisor, the Duke of Suffolk, to marry Margaret in his place. So uh, in 1445, Margaret finally arrived in England, having been married to her husband for a year, having still never met him. Uh, she was 15 years old, Henry was 23, and this union was intended to try and bring about a permanent peace between England and France, like all Henry's uh, activities in this period. And it made up for the fact that Margaret of Anjou was a slightly lower-ranking um, French royal. She had the advantage of being of childbearing age, unlike other pr prospective candidates, but she wasn't rich and she wasn't important. However, she and Henry seem to have uh, had quite an affectionate relationship. And yet months went by, and then years, and there is no sign of any child at all being born. Henry's subjects started to mutter. This is an indictment, in fact, against one of Henry's subjects, who in 1447 was arrested for claiming that um, 
Henry was being kept from his sport with his sovereign lady by two of his chief advisers, the Duke of Suffolk, the same man who had married uh, Margaret by proxy and had been Henry's steward since Henry was 11 years old, and his ally, the Bishop of Salisbury, Henry's confessor. Now, that was a bit embarrassing and a, a bit of a strange thing, but surely there was no truth to this, was there? Hmm, curious. Because there's another surviving royal document called the Royal Book, which was written in the 1460s by someone who was in a part of Henry's court, which laid out various items of court protocol, including what should happen when a king and queen had sex, basically, although it doesn't say that, uh, when they lay together. Uh, and it, uh, what was supposed to happen was the queen came to the king's chamber, uh, her servants went out, his servants went out, and effectively they were left alone to get down to business. And the writer of the royal book said, I, I saw never no person lie in the same chamber when this was going on, saving in King Henry's day, the Lord say with his chamberlain. Now the Lord say was yet another of Henry's closest advisers. And at one point the chamberlain was Suffolk himself. So, this suggests that, in fact, there was perhaps an element of truth to these rumours that Henry's advisers were getting involved in his sex life, not to try and stop him, but actually perhaps to try and, you know, spur him on. Because Henry was a famously chaste and virginal young man. He was, I'm absolutely certain, a virgin until he got married, and quite possibly a virgin for a little while afterwards, because one does wonder if you know, did he just simply not know what was going on? Did someone eventually have to step in and explain things to him? We can't be certain, but this is my supposition. What we can be certain of, though, is the fact that uh, Henry did not have a child with Margaret for, for some time started to cause him real problems. His subjects started to criticise his choice of advisers for being involved in his sex life. They criticised his queen for not being able to apparently have children. They criticised his masculinity as a male ruler, that he couldn't seem to have kids of himself, by himself. And this caused uh, in a real sense of unease about the future of, of England. In 1450, five years after Henry's marriage, with still no child, and any hope of this marriage to Margaret causing a long-term peace utterly collapsed. Charles VII pushed back the English uh, all the way, essentially, to the coast. And the English were driven out of every single corner of France, apart from Gascony, far in the south, and the town of Calais, far up in the north. In England, the news of these military reversals led to violence and chaos. The city of London was seized by a Kentish rebel army under one Jack Cade. And in six months, four of Henry's leading ministers were murdered by his subjects. Among them were the very men who had been named in relation to the goings-on in Henry's bedroom, the Duke of Suffolk, the Bishop of Salisbury, and Lord Say and Seal. For Henry, of course, these were extremely traumatic personal losses. People who had been with him since he was a child, destroyed uh, because of their involvement with his policies. And in the midst of all this, as Henry was reeling, as London was still effectively under the control of a rebel force, two of Henry's kinsmen returned to England after serving overseas for years, pretty much in the hopes of taking the place of some of those murdered chief ministers. 
and things entered a whole new phase of competitiveness around the person of King Henry VI. These two men were both related to Henry. They were both ambitious, they were both militarily experienced, having served in France for many years. Uh, on the left here, Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset, who had once uh, had an affair with Henry's mother, now long dead, and who recently had presided over the loss of France. So was, you know, you can imagine quite unpopular in England when he came back. The other um, person who returned to England at this time was Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York who had been serving as Henry's lieutenant in Ireland for the last few years, and was at this point Henry's closest male heir. Both of these men hoped to become Henry's new right-hand man. But although York would have been the more sensible choice for Henry, he made the cardinal mistake of criticising Henry's regime pretty much as soon as he returned. He wanted to appeal to the people of England, and he did it by claiming that there were traitors in government, that things had been, un been done unjustly, that change was needed, and who was the man to make that change? Oh, well, it was the Duke of York, of course. And as a result, Henry quite simply didn't trust him. And there was a pattern of mistrust between Henry and the Duke of York that was to go on... Uh, pretty much for the whole of the rest of their life. So even though Somerset was vastly unpopular with the rest of the country, Henry chose him as his chief advisor and shunned and slighted the Duke of York, something that York didn't take lying down. And for the next three years, sort of rebellions and risings continued to bubble away as Henry struggled to try and quash York's ambition and to regain control over his country. Now, by spring 1453, you know, by this point he has been king for 30 years, Henry VI had finally started to take real control of things. He finally had restored a measure of order in England and had shored up English defences in France. And the best news of all, Margaret of Anjou was finally pregnant. Yay! What could possibly go wrong? Cut to summer, 1453. Um, Henry VI and the Duke of Somerset rode out west to, um, to Wiltshire to deal with a local dispute there. And it was while Henry was, was waiting with a small riding household in a hunting lodge that he learned of this, the Battle of Castillon in which the English army in Gascony was annihilated. Um, a great war horse, the 60-something uh, John Lord Talbot, was cut down, in fact butchered so mercilessly by French archers that his own herald couldn't recognise his face and had to feel in his mouth for a missing tooth to identify his corpse. Um, and effectively, with the Battle of Castillon, Gascony was lost, meaning that now Henry's entire French kingdom was Calais. The news of this reversal after three years of such protracted mental and physical effort, probably never fully um, dealing with the losses of 1450, tipped Henry into a catastrophic mental collapse. He couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he didn't seem to recognise anyone. Today we would call this a psychotic break. And in the midst of this, three months into Henry's illness, with no sign that he was going to recover anytime soon, his long-awaited son and heir, Edward, was finally born. And Henry didn't even know it had happened. 
Henry's period of mental collapse has overshadowed uh, much of the rest of his reign. And it's sometimes remembered that he was uh, someone who suffered from mental ill health throughout his life. But in fact, it seems like this point when he is 31 is the first time that there is, uh, there is any sign of serious mental conditions. Um, one of the claims that has been made of Henry is that perhaps he was schizophrenic and that he inherited uh, that disorder from his grandfather, Charles VI of France, his mother's father. Now, Charles VI of France, who you see here in his first episode of uh, mental illness, uh, his illness was defined by frenzy, by paranoia. When he first fell ill, like Henry in the midst of summer, he was in his mid-twenties, Charles VI, um, he believed that he was going to be assassinated by one of his own men and butchered six of his own bodyguard and very badly wounded his brother before he broke his sword on someone and could be dragged off his horse. After that, he had periods of lucidity interspersed with periods of uh, mental collapse, effectively, in which he would run around his palaces until the doors had to be bricked up. He would refuse to be changed out of his clothing until they were sort of peeled off, lice ridden from his body. He uh, wore iron bars close to his skin because he believed people were trying to uh, assassinate him, to try and stab him. He said his name was George. All manner of peculiarities defined Charles VI's illness, and he undoubtedly never fully recovered. Yet all of that, all of that activity is in complete contrast to Henry VI, who just sat and did nothing. Now, that could be because they're just very different people, but I think it's because they didn't have the same illness. I think if there is a similarity between them, it's a similarity of experience in that both had been child kings. Charles VI had become king at the age of 11. So I don't believe that Henry had schizophrenia. And to try and sort of get to the bottom of maybe what was troubling King Henry VI, I wanted to look at what contemporaries said about him, and particularly to look at the treatment that was allowed to him. In March 1454, so by that point, we are many, many months into Henry's illness, a um, document was drawn up which specified uh, the permitted treatments that Henry's doctors could give him. Now, this was very wise. Charles VI's doctors had got in real trouble with him. One of them had been banished. Two monks who made some potions for him were eventually hanged, drawn and quartered. So if you were a doctor to a royal king who was having mental pro health problems, you really wanted to have a list of things you were allowed to do to him so he didn't get too angry with you. Um, and uh, I'm sure everyone can read it, but... Uh, just to test you, um, what are some of these things? You can shout out. What's this, do you think? Potions. Waters. Syrups. Laxatives. Suppositoria. Suppositories, yes, indeed. Uh, so, effectively, Henry's doctors... Now, these are not necessarily the treatments they did give Henry, but they were the treatments they were allowed to give Henry. So I think potions, waters and syrups is where you were likely to start, isn't it? The lowest level of intervention. Um, gargles and herbal baths. That, again, I think very likely Henry was treated with that. Laxatives, purging the body of its corrupt humours. Eh, quite possibly. Clisters and suppositories, clisters being enemas again, bodily purges, which 
being forced on you would not be particularly pleasant. And then head shaving and scarification or possibly bleeding is another um, explanation of that. Also potentially applying hot iron bars to the body as a way of drawing out humours. Now, I think it's arguable, if you're in a delicate mental condition, how much those would help you. But let us imagine for a moment that all of these things were done to Henry. Does this tell us what was wrong with him? Does this tell us what they thought at the time his illness was? And the short answer is no, it doesn't, because this is wide-ranging to the point of just being scattershot. This is throwing the kitchen sink at the problem. Do anything, try what you want. And it suggests to me that, in fact, Henry's doctors weren't completely sure what was wrong with him. And that further suggests that he had not had this illness before, that he hadn't shown any evidence of serious mental ill health until this very serious incident when he was 31. The key in any case, you know, is less what was wrong with Henry, and I would probably argue if we're going to retrospectively diagnose him that it was a severe depression. The key is, is much more what happened to the kingdom as a result of Henry's illness, and that we do know because it was decided by Henry's council that they would put in place the same system that had been there when Henry was a baby. They would appoint a protector of England. They would appoint one of his closest relatives to do it. Now, obviously, little Prince Edward of uh, Westminster is a, a baby, so can't be doing anything. Instead, Henry's next closest relative, Richard, Duke of York, was appointed protector of England. Which was fine, except that 16 months after falling ill, at Christmas 1454, Henry suddenly recovered. Again, he could talk, he could walk, he understood. He was told what had happened during his illness. He was delighted to hear he had a son. He was sad to hear the chancellor was dead. Um, he didn't realize anything that had happened during his illness. And he was not particularly happy that the Duke of York, who had caused him such trouble in the past, has been effectively ruling the country, especially when he learned that his wife, Margaret of Anjou, had suggested she be made regent and had been uh, overlooked for the job. He was even angrier when he learned that one of York's acts during the protectorate was to imprison the Duke of Somerset without trial. So he tried effectively to turn the clock back 18 months to before he fell ill. He restored the Duke of Somerset, he chucked out the Duke of York, he thought everything would be sorted by him doing that. But of course, a huge amount had changed. York had now had a taste of real power. He wasn't just going to recede into the background and it was extraordinarily naive of Henry to think that he would. Instead, what York did is he raised a great Northern army and he marched south on the road to London to face down the Duke of Somerset who was with King Henry VI and to force Henry VI to give up this despised counselor. The two forces met one another at the market town of St Albans in May 1455. And there, for the first time in his life, Henry experienced what battle was. Now, Henry at this point is 33. He's about twice the age that many uh, noblemen and princes were when they first faced battle. He's a man who loves peace. And we find him this May morning in 1455 in St Albans, right in the heart of the market, standing beneath his banner, probably not fully armoured, surrounded by uh, his sort of household servants, effectively, who are similarly not fully armoured, um, when 
negotiations between York's men and Somerset break down and Yorkist soldiers storm into the marketplace. Henry almost certainly sees his men shot with arrows, uh, hit with swords in front of him, and he is personally wounded in the neck and dragged off to a tanner's shop, a reeking place where leather is cured with feces and with urine, somewhere that he never would have normally been. Um, and I'm going to show uh, a skull in a moment, two skulls, in fact. If you do not want to see them, look away. And I'm emphasising this because, like I say, this is Henry's first experience of war. And this is what warfare is in the 15th century. Here, um, we two, see two skulls. The one on the left, there's a reconstruction of the person's face underneath uh, because actually he had received that wound to the face and survived it to fight another battle. Both of these skulls come from later in the Wars of the Roses, but these are the injuries to the skeletons uh, that we find here are very similar to those that are described at St Albans and at other battles throughout the Wars of the Roses. These are catastrophic wounds to the face, to the arms and legs. These are wounds that would bleed profusely. Uh, it's brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's very, very far removed from anything Henry might have been told about in his education when he was younger or the glory of the Battle of Agincourt. And this is what he experiences at St Albans. From this point onwards, two things happen after the Battle of St Albans. One is that Henry, who up until this point has been fairly ineffective, becomes utterly ineffective. Uh, I think probably he is so traumatised by this experience of battle in which Somerset is killed, in which a number of Henry's household servants are killed, uh, that he simply withdraws from the world around him. He doesn't want any part of this violent confrontation that is continuing. Um, so he tries to remove himself and Queen Margaret has to step in and sort of act as the head of the Lancastrian cause. And the other thing is that now that Lancastrians have been killed in battle, the vendetta between Lancaster and York becomes even more rigid. There are now sons of people killed at St Albans who want vengeance. There are now Yorkists who are still denied power, even though they've got rid of Somerset, uh, who are angry. And these two groups cannot be reconciled. Henry's answer to this situation is to, on one occasion, make these people walk through the streets of London holding hands. Something you'll be astonished to hear doesn't work. And that is it. I mean, apart from that, Henry really has stopped involving himself in things. And with the removal of the king from government, well, that is it. Things collapse. And the result is the Wars of the Roses. From 1459 to 61, there are a number of battles until in March 1461 at the Battle of Towton, uh, the bloodiest battle on British soil. Um, Henry's army is definitively defeated by a Yorkist army, not under the Duke of York. He has already been killed in an earlier battle, but instead under York's 18-year-old son, Edward, Earl of March. With the Battle of Towton, uh, Edward, Earl of March, effectively becomes King Edward IV, because in the 15th century, the victory in a battle is really just God choosing the side he likes best. With Towton, which is just complete uh, catastrophe for the Lancastrian cause, it seems very clear that God is no longer on Henry's side. He has moved over to the son of York. Um, 
Henry, Margaret and their son, their child son, Prince Edward, flee into exile and the Yorkists are established on the throne. Now, I'm going to, for the purposes of, you know, making this a little bit quicker, I'm going to skip through the next 10 years, a very exciting incident. So I'm not going to tell you about the years that Henry spends in exile in Scotland or Margaret of Anjou and little Prince Edward's many exciting diplomatic endeavours as they tour Europe searching for allies to lead an invasion. I'm not going to tell you about the random year in the wilderness that Henry VI has in which no one knows where he is or what he does or the fact he is caught in 1465, carted off to the Tower of London and imprisoned there. Uh, No, none of this I will tell you about. Uh, You will have to read my book to find out more. Uh, It is a very exciting period of history, uh, one that has been often overlooked. But I'm going to skip straight ahead to 1470 as Henry languishes inside the Tower of London and one day in October has a a, a deputation suddenly arrive into his prison cell after six, uh, five years, which tells him he's king again. Margaret's diplomatic endeavours have finally yielded fruit. Edward IV has been driven out of the country by a resurgent Lancastrian force. Henry is king once more. What, what on earth is going on? This is utterly bizarre. Henry sort of emerges blinking from his prison cell to find that uh, Margaret's Lancastrian army has seized control of London and the re-adeption, as it's called, of Henry VI begins. But now, Henry, in his 50s nearly, is an even more sort of shadowy and pathetic figure than he had ever been before. He is almost certainly in a profound depression. He's sleeping long hours. He's bearded. He's not caring for his appearance. He wanders the streets in mourning robes, blue velvet clothes. Uh, And anything that was there previously to make him seem like, you know, an effective ringleader is gone, especially when you compare him with the still young, virile and militarily experienced Edward IV, who returns in 1471 to once again um, pit himself against Henry in battle. Now, unfortunately for Henry, uh, his son Edward is just old enough at the age of 17 to come and fight in battle for himself. So in, again, in May, May is not a good month, it must be said for Henry VI. In May 1471, yet another battle is faced. Henry himself is not there, but his son, Prince Edward, is. And at Tewkesbury, Edward is cut down. Shortly thereafter, Margaret of Anjou is captured. Uh, Henry himself is once again seized and carted back into the Tower of London. And effectively, the Lancastrian re-adeption is over. Edward IV is back on the throne, and this time it is going to last. And just to make absolutely certain, um, when Edward IV returns to London on the 21st of May, 1471, uh, Henry VI is found to have died of sadness. What a coincidence! (laughs) Or, as people say fairly shortly thereafter, he has been stabbed to death. Certainly, one uh, quite close contemporary chronicler records that as Henry's corpse is brought out of the Tower of London and through the streets to his burial place, uh, his body is seen to bleed. Now, there, Henry's story should end because he is, after all, dead. (laughs) But strange to relate, 
that is not quite uh, the end of his tale. There is one final strange coda to this story because in the next uh, two decades, more than 300 people claim to have been miraculously uh, preserved in some way by the intervention of the late King Henry VI. A cult grows up around his shrine at Windsor, uh, and this is a woodcut of the blessed King Henry, Holy King Henry as he is known, um, with various people kneeling in prayer around the image of him here and with offerings left to him uh, in thanksgiving for some of these miracles. Because all of the things that sort of made Henry a fairly rubbish king, his indecision, his greater interest in education than in warfare, his desire for peace, these are things that actually, after you're dead, can be looked on, you know, with a, with a little bit of nostalgia. His suffering, his forbearance, his piety and learning, his kindness, these are how those things are interpreted once he is gone. And that all scrubs out the memory of how ineffective a king he had been. And I, I just want to, uh, near the conclusion, by mentioning some of these uh, miracles that Henry was said to have caused. Uh, one over here, we see a boat uh, that was saved by Henry despite having beached at one point and some chains as well, top right. Chains of prisoners who had been miraculously freed. Down here, bottom right, there is a woman with a dagger through her neck, which possibly is a woman called Helen Barker, who was recorded as having tried to slit her own throat, but who prayed to Henry and miraculously survived. Over here, top left, this slightly cheeky bottom with a, a hole in its abdomen above is perhaps a sailor who was wounded in the abdomen by a cannonball. And despite the fact that you could see his guts underneath and you could see his uh, digesting, uh, digestion in his stomach, actually managed to survive this incident and his sister went to Windsor to give thanks. Finally, down here, my personal favourite miracle, this is a man with a noose around his neck, perhaps someone called Richard Bayes, who in 1484 was condemned to hang to death for a crime he had not committed. And while he was in the noose, he claimed that he was saved from being strangled by the fact that uh, two forces lifted his legs so that the, the weight of the noose was no longer on his neck. One leg, he claimed, was held by Henry VI and the other by the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Alas, however, Henry never was canonised, uh, despite being a popular saint. He was never an official one. Um, and under Henry VIII, his slightly distant descendant, the monasteries were dissolved, pilgrim shrines were broken up, and Henry's cult was destroyed. To such an extent, in fact, that for a while, his exact burial place within Windsor was lost until he was exhumed in 1910, when it was discovered that uh, his arm bone had been replaced with the leg of a pig. Possibly, I think, kept as a relic by someone who was very keen on the cult of King Henry. Uh, so somewhere in the world, a bit of Henry still lingers. Now, Henry's afterlife was therefore just as remarkable and unique as his life and his death had been. Um, and his story, I think, really defines the medieval idea of fortune's wheel in which no matter how high you are, you can fall to the lowest depths. Here we have a king who uh, arrived on the throne as ruler of two countries, who lost France but maintained England, who lost England, then was restored to it again, then became a saint but was never canonised. And on and on and on this went. But the real tragedy of Henry's life, I think, 
is not that fate was against him. Uh, it's that he was a person who I think was genuinely a good person, someone who wanted peace before all else, who cared for his wife and child, uh, but who unwittingly, through his own inadequacies, unleashed unparalleled, really, bloodshed uh, on his kingdom, his family and himself. I think the real issue here is that Henry faced quite extraordinary circumstances. and He just wasn't an extraordinary man. After all, as I said right at the start, he was just a human being. Thank you. That was Lauren Johnson speaking at our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. Lauren's book on this subject, Shadow King, The Life and Death of Henry VI, is on sale now, published by Head of Zeus. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running other lectures from our history events every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for the second part of our episode on everything you wanted to know about ancient Greece. (laughs) 